through Timothy. Uh, if you've got your Bibles there, turn with me to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, and we did the first half last week of the chapter, and we're going to do the second half this week. Um, last week, Paul said to us, pray for everyone. Don't just pray for yourselves. Pray for everyone. Pray for the government. Really, the reason that I want you to pray, ultimately, because uh, God wants people to be saved. And so the reason we pray for governments and the reason we pray for everyone, ultimately, is because God wants to save people. There is only one God and one mediator. Let's just read through that quickly. Uh, I urge you, first of all, pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings, for all in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time, and I have been chosen as a preacher and apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, I'm just telling the truth. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. And I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair. Anyone looking? Or anyone wearing pearls? Uh, anyone got clothing that costs more than $20? Okay, or expensive clothes. For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. They should learn quietly and submissively. Don't let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterwards he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. <laughs> oh, that's a difficult passage, isn't it? What do we do with it? Now, a lot of people focus in on the, on the end bit and say, oh, that's really difficult. But... I mean, who brushes their hair in the morning and puts it into a nice shape? Prerequisite mark is that you have hair. <laughs> Last week, Paul wanted us to pray for everyone, ultimately because God wants everyone to be saved. Um, and today, I think what Paul wants us to get from the second half of this chapter is that our lives should reflect something of this ultimate cause, that God wants everyone to be saved. In other words, the second half of the chapter is putting it into practice. And, and, and men get it first off. Paul says to them, men, uh, I want all men everywhere to, to pray with, um, with um, holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. Remember what it said in verse 2. He said, pray for everyone so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Paul is writing and saying to men, men of faith, when you pray, when you approach God, your lives should reflect something of his godliness and dignity. Raising hands was the cultural way that, that one prayed in those days. You can go through the Old Testament. Moses raised his hands Solomon raised his hands 
towards heaven and he prayed. The raising hands was just the, the, the way of accentuating that you were speaking to God. The point is not the posture. Otherwise, all of us men, I, I rarely see a man today raising their hands when they pray. And that's not the point here. The, the point, says Paul, is that the hands of men who pray should belong to men whose lives match with the holiness of God. They should be holy hands representing the whole person. And, and Paul picks up two, two elements of, of masculinity. Men. Ladies, would you agree that men have the capacity to get angry? Men, would you agree? And we like controversy. We like debating because I'm right and you're wrong and, and we'll fight to the bitter end to prove who's right and who's wrong. And by the way, it's me, not you. And Paul writes here, he says, you know what? Men, when, when you pray, when you speak with God, and, and he's not talking about praying at home privately. He's talking about praying in public. Don't do, oh God, I pray about Graham. He's such a horrible man. And he has hurt me so badly by insisting that we must wash the communion cups twice according to Leviticus. <laughs> we can pray angrily. We, we can pray controversially. We can make a point out of it. We can even sound good doing it. Oh God, thank you that you have given us such a wonderful church and, and we do the right thing here and we love the community and we pray for the church down the road who really struggles with this. Passive-aggressive a little bit there. Paul says to men, men, when you pray, when you're in public and you're praying, when you're private as well, let your lives match up with God's holiness. Now the Bible does tell us that there are controllable factors that affect the efficacy of our prayers. Um, Things involving our relationship with God, um, hidden sin, if we're planning to sin, if we, if we lack trust. Um, there are also things involving our relationship with others. The Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Verse 8, anger and controversy break down relationships and break down love and so they don't match up with the holiness of God. I think Paul is saying to the men, men, when you pray to the God of peace and joy, is that what you are reflecting? Does your life match up with the one that you claim to serve? Don't just pray. Pray with holy hands. Now, I know no man who can do that perfectly. And the point is not be perfect. The point is strive to be with God. Strive to be holy as God is holy and God strives with you. 
And then we come to the woman. Hands up if you're a woman here. Oh, please, if you want to lynch me afterwards, do so. I shall not pray angrily back at you. Because women get a few more verses here. But the point is exactly the same. Paul is asking the woman to live out something of the gospel. The point for the men, when Paul says, men, I want you to pray uh, with holy hands lifted high, what Paul is saying there, when you pray, pray in such a way that people will see you and praise your Father. See, the ultimate point we saw last week in the first half of the chapter, the ultimate point is that God wants to save people. And so when we pray, if we pray angrily, people are going to walk in off the street and go, you know, these guys say they serve a God of love, but they're angry. And they're just fighting with each other. Paul says, match up who you say you serve with who you are. And he's doing that exactly the same thing with the woman. And it's got some, for us, perhaps some troubling language. And and I want to suggest just at the get-go that we have to read 1 Timothy 2 in the context of of the Bible, the rest of what the Bible says, and in the context of the culture into which Paul was writing. Um, The other thing to note, and this makes it even more difficult, um, in the Greek uh, you've got a a word for, the, the same word for man and husband, and you've got the same word for woman and wife. And so everywhere you read woman here, it could just mean wife. And every time you read man here, it could just mean husband. Grammatically, they are identical. And so we come to this text and we go, okay, does, it, does he mean woman or does he mean wife? Is he speaking just to the married people or is he speaking just to everyone who happens to be female and male? And I've got no answer to you because Paul doesn't spell it out here. So... Uh, we're going we're gonna to go on the assumption that it's, it applies to all the ladies present and all the men present. Um, but the fact is that a lot of what Paul says here is actually uh, can be applied just to uh, husbands and wives. we also got to say that the gospel does an awful lot to break down barriers between men and women. Galatians 3.28, um, in Christ there are no divides there is no longer male or female, Jew or Gentile. I think that's an important verse for us. The situation for women was interesting at about the time that Paul was writing. In Greek tradition, uh, traditionally, uh, if you were a woman, your life was around the house. Now, when I married my wife, I said to her, I was a a modern man. I didn't believe that she had to stay in the kitchen. Uh, I said, you could have the laundry as well. (laughs) And that was fine. (laughs) I'm glad she's not in the room right now. (laughs) There's a famous uh, Jewish prayer where a man thanks God that he is not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's the sort of situation we've got. But, but there's a complicating factor. 
Because at the time, at around about this time, so 80, 40, 50, 60-ish, there was a movement among women in the Greek-Roman society where wealthy women were openly flouting the traditional values. Um, They were going around uh, wearing suggestive clothing, uh, wanting and acting out the sexual freedom that normally in that culture was associated with the men. Uh, The practice of contraception and abortion was increasingly widespread. In fact, we read that a whole bunch of doctors were starting to refuse to do abortions because so many women were dying. There are, if you go to the, the secular writers of the day, there are many of them writing about how terrible a scourge these new women are on our society. One of them was a guy called Seneca the Younger, who in the 40s, which is this time, the time of Paul, wrote to his mother. He wrote strange letters to his mother. I don't think I would ever have written this, but he wrote to his mother, Never have you fancied the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. That's what she was being encouraged to wear. If, if you read the, the rest of his, his letter there, he, he speaks about the pressure on his mother and other women to dress and live according to the new image of woman. In fact, it was such an issue that that uh, Caesar Augustus drew up legislation about what you could and couldn't wear. And he made a rule saying, okay, uh, basically prostitutes have to wear this kind of clothing. And the new woman said, right, let's wear that. Society was standing up against this, oh, these women these days, they're just pushing all the boundaries. Isn't it interesting that every era in history, someone's pushing the boundaries. And we think, oh, we are the only generation, or the next generation's the only one to do that. The other problem, of course, in Ephesus, where, where Timothy was, as Paul wrote to him, is that it was well known for temple prostitutes who, who dressed very similarly. And I think this sort of cultural context is, is quite useful for us as we come to what Paul writes to Timothy. Remember, Paul's been lots of places. He spent a great deal of time in Ephesus. He knows the people. He knows the society. He knows the culture. And he writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, I want the woman to dress for the gospel. Uh, I suspect that verses 9 and 10 here are addressed to a group of of wealthy women, probably mostly wives, um, for whom respectability and regard for the traditional appropriate dress codes was not high on the agenda. Here are women who have, who have become Christians, who have learned, yes, we are free in Christ. There is, there is no longer any divides. We are, we are equals in Christ. And they're coming and, they, and they're just pushing that so far and they're coming into the church and they're gathering for worship and people are looking in and, and the same 
secular eye, like Seneca's, it's going, oh, how terrible, how horrible society. They're looking in on the church and they're going, and they're the same. Look at these Christians dragging society down into the dump. Destroying values and traditions. Paul's writing, I think, because he doesn't want Christian woman to be labeled as this kind of new woman, the ancient feminist, if you would. Why? Because that would bring the church's mission and witness into jeopardy. I mean, it's true that God looks in our hearts and, and He values us not based on what we wear or what we own, but but it's also true, isn't it? And this applies to men as well, but more for women. How we dress can reflect something of our inner life and our motivations and our desires. These women were, were certainly not being loving towards the men in their church. They were dressing deliberately, provocatively. But they were also not communicating to the world that Christians were good people. They were saying to the world looking in, Christians stand on the side of, this is a good word, lasciviousness. Christians stand on the side of dodginess. And so Paul says, I don't want people to look at the church. I don't want them to come walk in the door, stand at the back and go, wow, these guys are dodgy. In fact, he says the opposite is the best thing to do, to adorn ourselves with modesty and good works. Best fashion advice ever. And then he goes on. Wait, let me just pause there. Does that mean that you can't wear pearls or gold? That your hair has to be cut really short or shaved off like Mark? No. Paul's writing to a specific culture looking in and seeing these women and when they were dressing like that and when they were putting on the fancy hairdos, ooh, and when they were wearing the really big pearl earrings, Paul's not concerned with what they were wearing and how they were dressing. Paul, well, he is concerned about that as well, but he is concerned about what people think of Jesus because of that. And so the question today is, perhaps, what do people think of Jesus by the way I dress? What do people think of Jesus by the way I act? I mean, it, it can apply, to, can't it, if you, if you go, somebody comes in who hasn't eaten for three weeks and you're wearing $100,000 worth of gold on you. There's something wrong, isn't there? But it's so much broader than what we wear. And, and I think it continues into verse 11, 15. Um, he moves to the generic... Um, wife or woman. He, he's stating a principle. He says here, 
that the role of wives or women in, in the church meeting is to be a quiet learner. To accept the authority of the teacher, to embrace what is being taught, to learn the faith. Now, does this mean that women have to sit in the church and just blindly accept what they're told? No. In fact, one of the problems that Paul has got here is that there are false teachers in the church in Ephesus. And and women aren't just to, to soak in whatever anyone tells them. But why, why does Paul tell them to do this? We've already seen that in Ephesus there were some wealthy women, and, and I say wealthy women because they could afford the earrings and the gold. There are some wealthy women causing issues, looking to enjoy their freedoms in Christ um, to the fullest no matter what it means. Perhaps encouraged by the false teachers in the church to step into the role of teaching. Certainly encouraged by the false teachers to live in a way that is contrary to the gospel. Um, If you look in chapter 4, verse 3, you'll see that one of the things the false teachers were teaching is that women should not get married. And Paul, by contrast, says, you know what? Don't not get married. Have kids. Live a, a normal life as society approves of it. That doesn't mean you have to have kids, by the way. Paul is still looking at this cultural environment which says, you know what, you live your life the way you want to live your life, and who cares? It's about you. you know, this is the equivalent of, because you're worth it. And Paul says, you know what, it's not about you, it's about Jesus and the church. And I want people to look in on the church, and even in the way that you live, I want them to see something of Jesus. And I want them to look in and say, oh, they're all about themselves. I want them to look in and say, yes, they, they're good people, they, they live according to the, the norms of society. What about verses 13? And verses 14. God made Adam first and afterwards he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and sin was the result. Men, we are a better gender. (laughs) Oof. Yes, yes. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was standing right next to her. He never said to her, Hey, Eve, I don't think we should do that. Adam might not have been deceived. Adam knew not to eat the fruit. Eve gave it to him. He said, Oh, that's really good. He deliberately sinned. Who's better? Who's worse? I don't know. They're both the same, ultimately. They're both sinners. Men can be deceived as well, incidentally. I think Paul's saying to the women who, who are living all for themselves, he's saying, hey, don't, don't think too much of yourself. You know what? You've got issues too. Women aren't, women aren't fantastic. 
Well, they are fantastic. Boy, I'm glad my wife's not here. <laughs> Women are fantastic, but, but you're not better than men. And he says here, verse 13, For God made Adam first, and afterwards he made Eve. Now, the four there is interesting because it can be taken two ways. Either Paul is saying, women are not allowed to teach because that's the way God made it. Or else it could be, women are not allowed to teach because the story says that Eve was the one that was deceived. And therefore, everybody knows the story and everybody, therefore, in society thinks women are the one who are going to be deceived and therefore... Uh, I, women are more open to deception. It could either be a requirement or it could be an explanation for why Paul is saying women shouldn't teach. Either Paul is saying women are not allowed to teach because that's the way God designed it or Paul is saying women are not allowed to teach because everyone assumes from the story that they are the weaker sex, that they are deceived, that they will deceive us and therefore they shouldn't teach because that will bring the gospel into disrepute. Uh, if you're a, a Christian, can I just just random uh, poll here? Who who thinks women should be allowed to teach men? Hands up high or hands up low? Okay. <laughs> who thinks women should not be allowed to teach men? You can clarify. Time and place. Of course. Of course. Which is true. But isn't that interesting that all of us say that and then we have to deal with this passage? I, I agree, by the way. I, I'm, I'm all for women being allowed to teach, but there are good Christians who don't agree. And they don't agree on passages like this one. I would suggest that, that Galatians 3.28, that there is neither male or female, is a key verse. But there are, there are basically three views. Are women allowed to teach men today? Some say no because of creation, because Adam was made first, and because Eve was deceived. That is just proof that, that men should not be taught by women. And I'm not sure you can go there. There is the option that says, of course, this is nonsense because Paul is deliberately pushing down the females in the church in Ephesus and we should ignore that because it's not nice. Okay, let's just take the Bible seriously or go somewhere else. I... I should women be allowed to teach men? I want to say probably. And I want to say probably because although this text is serious and Paul says, I don't let women teach, he's saying it, I believe, in the context of women breaking social norms. And this is just another social norm that they would be breaking and people would be looking in and saying, what sort of a group is that? 
But there's more than just uh, the culture into which Paul was writing. Uh, I think the, the overwhelming trajectory of the Bible is towards equality. Uh, Titus 2, 3, uh, we see that women should teach others what is good. Acts 18, 26, we, we have the story of Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos uh, deeper truths about Jesus. Uh, it's quite interesting that Priscilla, the woman, gets mentioned first. Uh, Romans sixteen seven, Junior, female name, uh, is called an apostle. And now there are some translations which uh, translate to Junias, try and make it a male name, but, but the best textual evidence says that it's a female who is called an apostle. Romans 16, um, uh, Philippians 4, there's lists of women who serve in ministry with Paul. And then 1 Corinthians 14, as we mentioned, the gifts of the Spirit, there is no distinction made between men and women. I think as we look at the Bible, and especially the New Testament churches as it's described, there seems to be space being made for, for women to be more involved in the church and slaves to be more involved at the same time. But I think we see the Spirit moving in a way and, and the public roles of women changing a little bit as the Spirit moves. Not if, if the Spirit gives you the gift of, of preaching, then you've got to say what the Spirit says. In fact, we're told in Corinthians that women are to, to pray in public. But at the same time, we have to remember that the Christian community is never immune to cultural influences. And it's very easy for us to say, I am free in Christ, and so I can do whatever I want to. Yes, I'm free to do everything, but not everything is good for me, says Paul. Not everything is helpful. And in that context, for women to teach, it would have damaged the gospel. Because in that society, women weren't teachers. And they weren't trusted. I wonder almost whether it's not damaging to the gospel today when we say women are not allowed to teach. We have to remember, Paul is addressing specific people and situations. Um, his restriction, his command made good sense in that society at that time. But the other thing we've got to remember is that in Paul's day, they didn't have the New Testament. And so there was a much greater responsibility for the preacher. Today, when, when someone gets up to preach in a church, I don't have any authority in what I say. This is the authority. And whether I get up and say it, or Rhea gets up to say it, or anyone gets up to say it, the authority is not in me, the authority is in this word. And I think that makes uh, an important point when we say who can and who cannot speak. Because it's not the person up front. I'm, the, the preacher is just the instrument for God's voice to be heard. 
uh, that end bit of chapter f- 2, verse 15. Men, if you want to be saved, you want to be with God, you must trust Jesus. Woman, if you want to be with God for all eternity, you've got to have kids. Amen. <laughs> oh, <laughs> what if you can't? Is that what Paul's saying? Surely not. Everywhere he writes, he says, all people are saved by trusting Jesus. And then he comes here and says, no, and you have to have kids. No. No, that's not what he's saying at all. In, in fact, I think what he, what he says there, if you look there at the, at the original, it says, women will be saved by the childbearing. The childbearing. Whose childbearing? Mary's childbearing. Women will be saved by the bearing of Jesus by Mary. If you can understand my convoluted grammar. What's, what's he saying there? He's saying, look, I've just spent these last eight or nine verses speaking to women and saying, come on, come on, take a step back for the sake of the gospel. But by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying women are worse than men because at the end of the day, people are saved. How? Well, it's not by Adam. It's not by a man. It's through woman that Jesus came. This is like a little, you know what? Yes, I've, I've spent a verse on men. I've done a whole bunch on you guys. Don't, don't think I'm harsh on you because ultimately God has used women to bring Jesus into the world. So let's finish here. Um, how do we live for the gospel today? The whole point of this passage, in fact, the whole point of, of, of our life as Christians is, well, not the whole point. The whole point of our life as Christians is to be with God, but, but the mission that we have been given is to be an effective witness to the world. And we have to think how our behavior is interpreted by those who look in on us. Paul insists, whether you're a man or a woman, that our outward appearance should not conflict with our inward character. And the reason he wanted us to pray, remember, is so that we could live peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, does my behavior, do my words, do my actions help or hinder the good news? Does my character, my inner self, reflect the character of God? Does what I say I believe match up with how I act? Am I so concerned for my rights that I would damage the witness of the gospel? For us men, anger and controversy can still be an important issue to deal with. I think there's something in the male makeup. Did someone say definitely? <laughs> Ooh. It says that in Genesis. It's true. For women, well, let's go back to men. I forgot something there. You know what? Anger, controversy, that's important, but the way we joke, the way we, we speak, the entertainment we watch, whether we support the Dockers, well, that, that's not a bad one. 
everything we do is on display all the time. For women, um, the question is, does how I dress and act show love towards my fellow Christians? It's true for all people, but perhaps especially for, for women that you have to reflect the in crowd. I can't help but think if Seneca the Younger complained in AD 40 about how ladies were dressing, I think he would have had a triple bypass the moment he arrived in Australia in 2014. The question for both genders is this. Not what am I free to do, but am I willing to limit myself for the sake of the gospel? Am I willing to live my life? Because there is one God and one mediator and I don't want to turn people away from Him. Amen.